Today, next couple of weeks, we're going to be presenting um, where we're going with Valley Bible Church. One of the main plans and ideas we have of reaching out to our community, and it's called Oikos, 8 to 15. The world is smaller than you think. But first, I would like to turn to um, Mark chapter 5. We'll start with verse 1. It's uh, Mark chapter 5, starting with verse 1. After we read about a demon-possessed man, I'm going to tell you about a, a theory that I think Jesus was implementing before we even knew he was implementing it. They finally put a name to it in 2001. Here we go, Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes where Jesus got out of the boat. Sorry. <laughs> and a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with chains. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him and shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? In God's name, do not torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again, not to send them out of the region. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demon begged Jesus, send us among the pigs and allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been demon-possessed by the had been demon-possessed by a legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him to go with him. Jesus did not let him but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Did this demon-possessed man need Jesus? How desperate was he to hear the words of Jesus, demons come out of him? How desperate was he to hear the good news from Christ? How, what do you, just think for a moment, if you're in the hills crying out, screaming at night, yelling, cutting yourself, how desperate would you be to hear the words of life from Christ? This man needed Jesus. 
He needed the words from the Savior. He needed salvation. He needed to be rescued. There are many people in your life that need to hear the words of salvation, the words of Christ, the power of the gospel, which is their salvation, Romans 1, 16. The thing is, not everyone you run into is demon-possessed. You may think most people are, but not every one of them is demon-possessed, but everyone needs Christ. Everyone needs salvation. Edwin and I were driving with a good friend. I used to tell his name all the time, but I won't tell his name. We were driving with a good friend to go out to eat, and um, we asked him to share his testimony. By the time he got done with his testimony, Edwin and I were shaking, and we started to pray. And the first words out of Edwin's mouth was, Lord, thank you for saving Legion. His life was so out of control the drugs, the LSD, the violence, the arrest records, the prison, all of that stuff, it was so out of control. But it only took one person sharing the gospel with him. And he's been living for Christ ever since. Dear brother in the Lord, dear brother in the Lord. But not everyone around you is going to be that challenging for sure. But it just takes a little bit of faith, a little bit of courage, and maybe a couple of Bible verses to share with somebody the good news of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine if you were that demon-possessed man, and after Jesus cast out all of those demons who have been tormenting you all of those years, and you said, Jesus, I want to go with you. I want to go with you. And Jesus said, no. No. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't you be heartbroken? Wouldn't you be disappointed? Here's the Savior. Here's the rescuer. Here's my king. Here's my God. And he just said no. But you got to realize no matter how much you want to serve Jesus, no matter what you want in life, Jesus has the ultimate plan for his kingdom. And he has the ultimate plan for your own life. He told the demon-possessed man who had been saved, rescued, the demons cast out, he told them, go to your own people. Go to the ones you know already, those you have an influence over, those you, you know by name, those who know you, those who are surrounded by you, surrounding you. Go to those people. In our own society, that would be somebody, uh, a barista, Larry Howard knows every barista at the, at the Hercules uh, coffee shop over here by uh, Burger King. He knows them all by name. That's part of his oikos. That's part of the people he has influence over. Are you in school? Are you taking classes? Those people and people around you that you know by name and they know you, that's your oikos. That's the people you have influence over. Um, a, a neighbor, your own brother, sister, family member, nieces, nephews, that's your oikos. The world is smaller than you think. It's interesting, this theory that came out. Uh, many of you have heard the theory of six degrees of separation. I'll give you a little bit of history about it. Um, there was, in 1920s, there was a Hungarian writer, um, Carinthi, who wrote this story about chains. He said, we are all links in a chain, and we are all connected together all the way around the world. 
everyone is connected to somebody else around him. Well, in the 1950s, a man named Poole at MIT and coaching from uh, IBM decided to prove his theory, his story, mathematically. So they put together the formulas, thought it through, came up with a, a mathematical equation that showed that we were all connected. But it still wasn't enough to impress everybody. In the 1950s, a man named Poole at MIT, or sorry, a, a sociologist in the 1960s, Milgram, devised a plan. He called it the small world problem. His research was published in Psychology Today. What he said was, I'm going to take an experiment to prove this chain of connections. I'm going to take and pick 100 people randomly and give them a package. And this package needs to be handed to a friend. And that package needs to be handed to another friend. And the target was a person in Massachusetts that the original people who received the 100 packages did not know him or were not acquainted with him. All 100 packages passed from hand to hand to hand. And with five, within five to seven people, that person in Massachusetts received all 100 packages. He came up with a theory that we now know as six degrees of separation. About within six degrees, you know President Obama. Within six degrees, you know Pastor Phil Howard. Within six degrees, you know President Carter. Within six degrees, you know uh, President Putin in Russia. That is how far out it is, just six people. That's how close we are in knowing one another. Now, this is... Um, that didn't quite sell everybody on it. In 2001, Watts at Columbia University decided to prove it again. So he took an email that he called the package. And with that email, he decided to send it to 40, have 48,000 senders in 157 different countries. Send that email out to people they knew personally that would send it to another person that that person knew. Do you know, you, you know your friend? And you might know your friend's friend, at least by name, but by the third and fourth person, you have no idea who those people are. No idea. But because your friend has intimate knowledge of his friend, who has intimate knowledge of his friend, who has intimate knowledge of his friend, within six uh, uh, degrees, six passings of this email, all 48,000 emails arrived at the 19 locations and to the people that were on the, on the web, on the email site. I believe that when Jesus told the demon-possessed man to go back to his oikos, to go back to his family, he is already implementing six degrees of separation. He was saying, no, we're going to go out into these areas that we know. We're going to go preach to these other people, but you need to go take this good news to your hometown. The people that you know, that you have influence over, your oikos. And by doing that, him covering just his little piece of the puzzle, his little piece of the puzzle, others that get saved that are witnesses of Christ are covering their piece of the puzzle. You're covering your piece of the puzzle. I'm covering my piece of the puzzle. You're going to your oikos. I'm going to my oikos. By doing that, with the six degrees of separation, with everyone sharing, just with the people around them, we are covering little circles that cover the whole globe. 
it is amazing how the gospel is being spread in other countries around the world. When we went to Cuba, one of the things that I discovered was the iron curtain and iron bars cannot hold Jesus out. Iron curtains and iron bars cannot hold Jesus out. Going to prison ministries and jail ministries, seeing men and witnessing men getting saved, those iron bars weren't keeping Jesus out of that jail. There's no way. By you sharing with the people that you know, they're sharing with the people that they know. The gospel is reaching around the whole world just by taking a small piece of the puzzle. We don't have to be burdened like Paul was burdened to preach all around the whole world. I tell you what, I have a hard time with English. I can't learn five different languages and, and travel with all around the world spreading the gospel. But if I just take a little piece of my pie, a little piece of the puzzle, my oikos, and share Jesus there, people will know the Savior. People will know salvation. And these findings of six degrees of separation, um, they started applying it to diverse uh, network theories. They applied it to power grids, disease transmission, corporate communications, computer circuitries. This six degrees of separation is helping them discover how things are so quickly connected, that things are not as far apart as we imagine. The w original website uh, in 1997 called Six Degrees of Separation is considered the precursor to Facebook and Twitter. With the power of emails, the power of Facebook, that degrees of separation has shrunk from six degrees to four degrees. Four degrees of separation. You can almost touch everyone out there that you know. Everyone out there that you're just acquaintance with. Everyone out there is going to be influenced. Just imagine how many people will be influenced because you shared Jesus. Um, Gwen Larson this morning came up to me and said, Sean, there was a little 10-year-old boy in our neighborhood who would spend the night at our house quite often. He'd just lay on the, he'd sleep on the floor, just lay on the floor and sleep there. She just saw him a couple of weeks ago, 35 years later. And she said, he's so on fire for Christ. He's so on fire for Jesus. She said, that was my oikos. That little boy was in the neighborhood. I knew him by name, and I just let him stay. We fed him. I just let him spend the night. He said he felt so safe in their home. He felt so blessed there. And he received Jesus because of their kindness and sharing Christ in their oikos. Every week, we're going to be talking to you about your oikos. Right now, I'd like to show a video from Tom Mercer, the man who wrote this book. We have a few left. It looks like a, uh, about a dozen books left. Um, if you drop off $10 in that basket, just take one that's helping us cover the cost. It's not the full cost of it. If we run out, you can go on Amazon. It's uh, 14 bucks on Amazon with Amazon Prime. So after the service, if you don't have one, we're wanting the whole church, everyone in the whole church, not just small groups, but all of us in this book, 8 to 15. Here's Tom Mercer. I hope you've had the chance to read the first four chapters of the book, 8 to 15, The World is Smaller Than You Think. Don't worry if you haven't, but those who have will have a bit of a head start on this journey we're going to share for the next three weeks. I hope the concepts in those chapters and what I'm going to share with you in this video presentation 
will lead you into a stimulating discussion with your group about your role in building the kingdom of God. Because today, I want to change your perspective about evangelism. For 90-year-old golf pro Harvey Pennick, success came late in life. His first book, Harvey Pennick's Little Red Book, sold millions of copies. He went on to write four more golf books, and all of them sold well, the final three being published after his death in 1995. But anyone who imagines that Pennick wrote the books to make money simply doesn't know the man. In the 1920s, Pennick bought a red spiral notebook and began jotting down observations about golf. Never showed the book to anyone except his son until 1991 when he shared it with a local writer and asked if he thought it was worth publishing. The man read it and told him, well, absolutely, yes. He left word with Pennick's wife the next evening that Simon & Schuster had agreed to an advance of $90,000. But when the writer saw Pennick later, the old man seemed troubled. With all the medical bills, he said, there was just no way he could advance Simon & Schuster that much money. The writer had to explain that the opposite was actually true, that Pennick would be the one to receive the 90 grand. What he thought would be required by the publisher was actually going to be provided by the publisher. You know, for years, I believed that my job as a believer was to help my church be a great success. And that if enough other people in town did the same thing, then it would be a great success. But since then, I've learned that the opposite is actually true. That Jesus didn't create me so that his church would be successful. He built his church so that I could be successful. What I once thought was required by Christ church is actually to be provided by Christ church. I have to smile when someone calls me or sticks their head in my office door and asks, are you busy? Well, I don't want to be rude, but the honest answer is always, yes, I am. I'm usually okay with the interruption, but I'm never not busy. I'm never just sitting around waiting for someone to give me something to do. But I found that same thing's true for most all of us. We're all pretty busy. And on top of the important things in our agenda, there are those, well, necessary frustrations of life that we all have to simply put up with. For example, in an average lifetime, each of us will spend six entire months sitting at intersections waiting for the traffic light to turn green. We'll spend eight months of our lives opening junk mail and spend five whole years of our lives waiting in line somewhere. It's been estimated that 80% of what you do could be done by someone else with absolutely no training. That 80% contains the things that all of us do every day. And by saying that, I don't mean to in any way trivialize them because many of those things are not only important but essential to our survival. We might not do them the same way others do, but the fact is, other people can do them as well as we do. And then 15% of what you do could be done by someone else with some training. That 15% contains things like your occupation, things that you and at least a small group of others are all probably pretty good at. But the truth is, if we ever quit our jobs, management could probably find other people who, when trained, could do what we did, and in many cases, the new guys might even do them better than we can. It's not that these 15% are unimportant, but the things in this category are just not unique to us. And then there is that remaining 5% of what we do. 
And that 5% can only be done by you and I. That's the area of focus for which God gives us the greatest passion because it's what has our unique signature on it. And relationships are that way. We will probably interact with thousands of people throughout the course of our lives. But at any given point in time, God has given each one of us, on the average, anywhere from 8 to 15 people whom He has supernaturally and strategically placed in our relational worlds. In the first century, the Greeks used one word to describe this personal, very unique world, and that's the word oikos, or as that word means, extended household. And now, 2,000 years later, half a world away and living in a completely different culture, I find that my circumstance is much the same. My oikos is still comprised of 8 to 15 people whom God has supernaturally and strategically placed in my relational world. You have an oikos. And they're not the same 8 to 15 people that make up mine, but are the relationships that bear your very unique signature. And it is that world, your world, that God wants to redeem, to bring to Himself, and He wants to use you to help them understand that. If I told you that 90% of the people who come to Christ all did so in the same way or through one strategy, you'd want to know what that strategy was. And then if I told you that it had nothing at all to do with a pastor's sermon or a church's program or even an evangelistic crusade, you'd be really interested. More than likely, even you came to Christ in that same way because of someone in your oikos. In fact, how many of you in your group that is meeting right now, how many of you would say that the number one factor that God used to bring you to Himself was a parent or a sibling or a friend or a coworker or a classmate or a neighbor, someone in your oikos? In fact, stop this video right now and find out and then fire me up again in a few minutes. guys would just take uh, just two, three minutes here and share with somebody around you, two or three other people around you, and just tell them who was a major influence in your salvation, who brought the gospel to you, a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, somebody at school. Just share with somebody right now. Take a minute to do that. I told you so. I'm not even there in that room with you guys, but I'm pretty sure that you responded like every other group I've ever asked that question of. Whether it was a small class or an audience of thousands in this country or on the other side of the world, the response has always been the same. Virtually everyone in the room raises their hand, and I'm never surprised because throughout the history of Christ's church, it has never not been true. After healing the demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5, you know what Jesus told him? He told him to specifically go home to your own people, the word there, oikos, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Immediately following Zacchaeus' conversion in Luke chapter 19, Jesus reflected on what had just happened and said, today salvation has come to this house, the word oikos. When Jesus healed the son of a royal official in John chapter 4, it says that he and his whole household, the word oikos, believed. 
And when Jesus called Levi, that is Matthew, to be his disciple, it says in Mark chapter 2 that while Jesus was having dinner with Levi's house, that is, his oikos, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. In Acts chapter 10, we see the first example of a Gentile oikos coming to Christ. Cornelius responded to the gospel presentation that Peter made, and he and his entire household became believers. Later, in reporting to the church leaders in Jerusalem, in chapter 11, Peter reflected on what the angel had told Cornelius about Peter when he said this. He said, he'll bring you a message through which you and all of your household, your oikos, will be saved. And the story continues in Philippi with a woman named Lydia and the city jailer, both of whom responded to the Apostle Paul's challenge to place their faith in Christ. And Acts chapter 16 describes how in both cases an oikos believed and were all baptized. Now, when you read all of those accounts, you recognize that God is always one step ahead of his children. He doesn't just say, isn't it nice that there's another one now who wants to follow Jesus? He says this, isn't it exciting that now another relational world has been infiltrated with the gospel and it's just a matter of time until that world is completely changed. In fact, later on when you make out your list of your oikos, I believe you'll be looking at a number of future Christ followers. And you might ask, Tom, how can you be so sure? Well, I'm sure because all of those people have something in common. They all know you. And so who is in this prestigious group? Well, suppose you had the capacity to declare to everyone on the planet that you were a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, that we had this communications department of some incredible worldwide agency hook you up to speak to everyone in the entire world, translating your words into every language on earth. And that, I don't know, maybe seven or eight billion people all heard you boldly declare that you were a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. You know what? On the average, only eight to 15 people would know if you were really telling the truth. So who would those people be for you? Because that is your oikos. That is your evangelistic niche. God has never given any of his children too much to do or too much responsibility. He's really good at dividing up what we're responsible for so that we all have a part, but not too much of a part, just enough to do really well. For example, I doubt that you've ever given the same Christmas presents to everybody on your list. None of us do. Because certain gifts are appropriate for some of the people in our lives and other gifts are more appropriate for other people in our lives. I would never think to give my young granddaughter the same gift I give my grown son because he just wouldn't have much use for a Dora the Explorer game. Well, neither does God give everybody in his family the same spiritual gifts because Jesus has niched the body of Christ for maximum performance. He gave you certain specific spiritual abilities. You could call it your gift niche. Evidently, he wants all of us to become specialists, to become very good at one thing or a very short list of some things. He wants all of us to have focus. And when it comes to evangelism, God has niched us again. He wants us all to be involved, but with certain very specific people. 
He knows that if you feel your job is to witness to everybody you meet, then you probably won't witness to anybody you meet. Granted, we represent Christ to everyone we come into contact with. And some of the best times in our lives are those spontaneous moments when we make a spiritual difference in the life of someone we hadn't even known before. But for most of us, those moments are pretty rare. And there's no shame in admitting that. Our primary responsibility is simply to be prepared to minister the grace of God to those people He has already strategically placed in our lives. Jesus told us that we are the light of the world. You already knew that. But what's the most powerful form of light in the world? Well, it's a laser light. A laser is created by a device that generates and amplifies a narrow, very intense, focused beam of light. In fact, scientists call that coherent light, as opposed to the diffused light that probably surrounds you right now, which is described as incoherent light. And the power of that focused light, seemingly endless in virtually every element of our lives, it has added a new dimension of efficiency in medicine, in weaponry, in entertainment technology, in construction, you name it, and even in the church. And the difference between Christians who you could say are coherent and Christians who you might say are incoherent is this element of laser-sharp focus. Because everything and everyone cannot be a priority to us, or nothing and no one will be. If we try to evangelize everyone, which was what I was raised believing to be the goal, then we will end up evangelizing no one, which is what I actually experienced for most of my life because there was no focus. And Jesus is all about focus. He came to accomplish a very focused, very specific job to seek and to save people like us, those who were lost without him. Jesus didn't come to feed people or heal people. He did both because he cared about them. But when he took off, and I mean literally took off, there were a lot of hungry people who still could have used a meal, a lot of sick people who still could have used a healing, even a lot of dead people who still could have used a resurrection. But Jesus came with a very specific focus, and he accomplished a very specific purpose. He left the Father was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, rose from the grave to conquer death, and then ascended back to the Heavenly Father. He finished the job He came to do, and when He was done, He left. That's why we call Easter weekend the passion of the Christ. That was His passion. That was His focus. That was something that He and He alone could accomplish. That was His 5%. Nobody could save the human race but Jesus. If he hadn't bothered to passionately focus on his unique mission, then something really important would have never been accomplished, and we would all still have to deal with the consequences of our own sin. And Jesus calls us, all of us, to be involved in very specific tasks. We call them spiritual gifts. To get together with other like-minded believers at a very specific place. We call it a local church to prepare to do life with a very specific group of people that we call our oikos. Some years ago, I read an article about a guy who went to a church conference. 
much like many of the ones that I've participated in over the years. And during the three days of that conference, as he attended a number of different seminars, he heard this line, the most important thing you can do for your church is, and then the seminar leader offered his or her featured something that was evidently the most important thing you could do. In fact, he heard that line so often he began writing down every occasion someone said it. And at the end of the conference, he realized that he had heard that most important line 26 different times in three days. But you know there cannot be 26 most important things that a church should do. There can't be 20 most important things that a church should do, or 10, or 5, or even 2. By definition, there can only be one most important thing in anyone's church and in anyone's life. And that makes up your life mission, the mission that Jesus gave you. To those people, that 5%, He has supernaturally and strategically placed in the regular routine of your life. And that doesn't mean other things in life are unimportant. It means that they are simply less important. The world has always tried to tell us that we don't have to make hard choices about what to do with our lives. That life is like having a $5 million gift certificate to the mall, which means you could afford to have it all or do it all. But the Bible says that life is more like having a $5,000 gift certificate to the mall. It's pretty cool to have that much to spend but it still means we're going to have to make some significant, maybe even difficult choices. Everything in life has a price tag on it. I guess you could call it the law of the price tag. There is an appropriate price that things should cost, depending on how much they're worth. Sometimes you get a great deal having paid far less than something is actually worth. And then other times the price exceeds the value. And you end up with buyer's remorse, paying far more for something than it's actually worth times of crisis, you can get arrested for putting too large a price tag on something of lesser value. It's called price gouging. But this is the way it's supposed to work. The greater the value, the higher the price. That principle is always brought into focus during a natural disaster. As evacuees are forced to leave their homes, they load up a relatively small number of things in a suitcase or in the trunk of their car. And when I've watched those anxious moments on television, as people frantically load up and leave, trying to stay ahead of the approaching danger, I've always thought to myself, I wonder what they put in their trunk. What holds the kind of value to them that when required to pare their earthly possessions down to a few things, a particular item makes the final cut? Every one of us right now has a life trunk, if you will. And the question is, what's in your trunk? Or as Jesus would ask, who's in your trunk? Who is so valuable to you that you are willing to spend significant time or resources to make sure they're safe? And if people are not in your trunk, if they are left in the house to be flooded or burned, what is so valuable to you that you are willing to jeopardize those relationships to save it? Of all the good things in life, which ones have the most value? You know, that's always been a great question. In fact, King David weighed in when he reduced the 613 requirements of the law down to 11. In Psalm chapter 15, verse 1, it says this, A psalm of David, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue. 
who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts, who lends his money without usury and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. And then Isaiah reduced them down to six. Isaiah chapter 33 says, He who walks righteously and speaks what is right, who rejects gain from extortion and keeps his hand from accepting bribes, who stops his ears against plots of murder and shuts his eyes against contemplating evil, this is the man who will dwell on the heights, whose refuge will be the mountain fortress. His bread will be supplied and water will not fail him. And then Micah reduced them down to three. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. But Jesus, He reduced them down to two. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus said that all of the good things in life simply do not have equal value. So, whatever else you do, make sure your highest priorities are to love God and to love others. And that's what I call the Martha Principle. Everything in life and ministry is not of equal value. You can look at Martha's story. It's recorded in Luke chapter 10. Beginning in verse 38, it says this. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Jesus was essentially telling those gals that everything in life and ministry has a price tag on it. Both of them spent their time that day doing something important for Jesus. But Mary's something important had more value. According to Jesus, the things that have the greatest value are relationships. A relationship with God and a relationship with other people. And this is the problem. You can't just do one of those two. It's both or it's neither. You can't serve God without serving people. You can't focus on God without focusing on people. You can't even love God without loving other people. And that's why Jesus gave you both another day to live, and if you want to live it for him, a group of people to love. In fact, 8 to 15 of them. The most important 8 to 15 really amazing reasons that you have to get up every single morning. All right. So... What I want you to do here in a second is uh, raise your hand. What I need to know is how many people out here um, had the major influence of coming to Christ by a friend, a neighbor, a classmate, a work, co-worker, a mom, a dad, a relative? How many of you? 
found Christ through an influential person like this. All right, everybody take a look around the room. Keep your hands up. Take a look around the room. All right, I had a class on this a few months ago and uh, asked the same questions. So I know that there's a few out there, Della, <laughs> who just somebody came into your life and shared Christ. You really didn't have a relationship with them. You really didn't know them. You, you just barely met them or somebody that came knocking on your door or somebody uh, shared Christ with you that you weren't expecting to, um, them to have uh, an influence over you or share Christ with you. How many people came that way by somebody they didn't really know that well? Right, take a look around the room. That's about less than 5%. The oikos method of evangelism, the, the DNA of the oikos, we are really hoping and praying that everyone at Valley Bible Church will get a hold of this book, will be here to learn the next few weeks on what the oikos is and be able to share Jesus Christ with those around you. Um, many of you guys have friends or neighbors or relatives. You know somebody that may have a drug addiction problem, um, maybe depressed, maybe an angry person or a violent person. I was thinking this morning, I was talking to Deborah, that Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they ran away from God. They went to go hide. They didn't want God to find them in their sin. If God didn't look for them, they may have been lost forever. God has sent you into your oikos to bring the message that Jesus loves them. I, I love Luke chapter 4. It's one of my all-time favorite verses when Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he says, the Spirit of God is upon me to set the captives free, to bring freedom to the oppressed. That's what the, the gospel does. It breaks the chains and shackles and it releases them. Um, right now, I'd like for you to take out a piece of paper and a pen and um, start jotting down 8 to 15 names that you know personally that you can be praying for, for salvation. Eight to 15 names. Now, some of you guys are like me and have ADD, and it's going to take you three or four days to, to remember all the names, to write them down. But if you can start that list, that'd be good. Some of you, next 30 seconds, are going to write down 30 names. But if you would, start writing down eight to 15 names. Over the time of Valley Bible Church, over this year, over the next year, we're going to be asking you each Sunday to pray for your oikos, for those 8 to 15 names. That's where it starts. Just pray that the Holy Spirit works in their lives.